Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And just by looking through the kinds of foods that were available during a time period and how they were prepared, you get a much better sense of what life was like during the time period. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution editor, Don Hagist, sharing some 18th century recipes guaranteed to be a crowd pleaser at your holiday dinner. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to a very special holiday edition of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, we're going to be joined by... Uh, the man who actually was our very first guest, rightfully so, uh, one of the major head honchos here at the Journal of the American Revolution, our editor and author, Don Hagist. If you've been reading the Journal of the American Revolution the past few weeks, you would have seen a lot of Don's articles featuring the life of a woman named Martha Bradley. More importantly, the article focuses on her recipes, foods that were used in the 18th century, uh, some we would recognize today, and some that, quite frankly, uh, would be bizarre to our modern Thanksgiving or holiday table. But that being said, it was a multi-part article, very fascinating. The images that were posted with it were uh, mouth-watering, to say the least. It's a really fun, really great read to sort of remind you of what life was like in the 18th century. So without further ado, sit back, relax, have a great holiday season, and enjoy our interview. With Don Hagist. Don Hagist, welcome back. No, thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us about the origins of this project. Oh well, this is um, it's a topic that I'm fond of. I, uh, you know, I write a lot about the American Revolution and I research the topic. My main focus is on British soldiers and military matters, but I have a lot of primary sources at my fingertips because they very often help put things in context, even if it's not a primary source that at first glance looks like it would be specific to my interests. And one of the things that I like having on hand is a nice collection of 18th century cookbooks. Um, They're primary sources. And just by looking through the kinds of foods that were available during a time period, and how they were prepared, you get a much better sense of what life was like during the time period. I mean, if you think about our lives today, even a person who isn't a foodie, look at what an important cultural element food is to us on a day-to-day basis and how much it defines our comings and goings. Well, same during the time period. So even if I just want to study soldiers in the army somewhere, just understanding a lot about the food culture there is helpful. Um, these, this particular set of articles, we're talking about 
articles that appeared in the journal of the American Revolution during Thanksgiving week in November of 2019. And editing the publication, I just wanted something that echoed this primarily American holiday. I think the United States and Canada and only a few other places celebrate Thanksgiving. And we try to be a secular publication. We're not really big on trying to focus our articles on what happened this same week or this or that anniversary or what have you. But this is a great week to think about food. Thanksgiving is very much of a food holiday. So I thought it would be fun to just showcase some 18th century recipes. We've done this before in the week of Thanksgiving. So this particular series, I pulled off the shelf a set of cookbooks called Martha Bradley's um, The British Housewife or the Cook, Housekeepers, and Gardener's Companion by Mrs. Martha Bradley. Um, She was from Bath in England. And the nice thing about her set of works is that she put it together chronologically. So she has month by month what kinds of foods um, were available and how to prepare them properly. So no, she wasn't preparing things specifically for a Thanksgiving celebration, but I just went to her chapter, her section on the month of November, said what she got to say and which little pieces can I pull out that might make us think about our modern perceptions of Thanksgiving compared to what kinds of foods and what preparations were available in the middle of 18th century England. Food is a major part of the American holiday tradition. What kinds of ingredients did Martha Bradley seem to favor in her recipes? Well, that's a great way to frame the question because every single... Well, Martha Bradley wrote, a, wrote initially a series of pamphlets and they were published weekly. There were about 42 of them. So although within the um, content of the pamphlet, she covered the entire year. She didn't quite have one pamphlet for every week. Um, But month by month, she went through for January, for February, for March, and she talked about pretty much the same things within each one. They follow a basic format, which I'm fumbling around trying to find and read to you here. Just one moment. For every single month, Martha Bradley talked about, she had a section on marketing, and then a section on cookery, a section on confectionery, and then pickling, and then preserving, and then brewing and distilling. Um, And she also talked about disorders, you know, the kinds of sicknesses you might get in your house. And um, after talking about disorders of people, she got into disorders of cattle. And she included sections about managing the garden and the orchard. So to get at your question about ingredients, every single month she starts with a section on marketing. And that tells you straight away what kinds of ingredients she's going to have. And it starts with a section on butcher's meat. Well, November is a good time to be out buying beef and other kinds of meats, um, You know, food was a very seasonal thing in the 18th century because there was not the same means to preserve things as we have today, which doesn't mean there weren't means to preserve things, just very different methods. Um, So Martha Bradley starts talking about beef, and then she 
goes on to talk about how to select good mutton, um, veal is in season, pork is in season, a whole section on poultry, which features turkeys, of course, but also geese, pigeons, and pullets, and larks. Um, And she discusses different fish, pastry that is particularly good at this time of year, what sorts of greens, root vegetables, and on and on she goes in different fruits that are ripe. And of course, November is a pretty good time for catching the last of the different ripe fruits. Which ingredients would seem unusual to our, uh, I guess you could say, modern sensibilities? Um, well, sure. And to, to make it, you know, there, there's so many recipes, it's hard to single out individual things, particularly for me not being much of a foodie. But um, we find, for example, about a dozen different ways to prepare pigeons. Um, I don't know how many people have eaten a pigeon recently, at least not in my town. We have several different ways, half a dozen ways to prepare larks. Uh, we have orange puddings, you know, not something to think of. Olive pie. I'm just reading through the index right now because there's so many different choices and some things sound familiar enough and then some things sound completely foreign. She has a whole section in several different months about how, about making cullises and I still don't have any idea what a cullis is. I couldn't even find a uh, a definition for that. <laughs> So I've got to work on that one a little bit. It's probably some variation of spelling of something that will turn out to be familiar. Discuss the side dishes that you found in her writing. Oh, that's a great question. And it was tricky to single things out here because Martha Bradley arranged her. uh, She used some categories that we might not use today. She starts out and she talks about roasting. So I focused on the chapter on roasting to talk about preparations of Thanksgiving meats. But then she follows up with a section on boiling and then broiling. Well, okay, we're still main courses and frying. Then it gets into baking, which we think of as a very dessert thing, but she has savory dishes to be baked. Then there's a chapter on sauces. And now we're getting toward the kinds of things that we say side dishes, but she doesn't use terminology like this at all. Um, we have soups, which is a nice side dish. And for the month of November, Martha Bradley has lamb's head soup, um, which includes different aspects of preparation. Like, uh, well, I'll just read a little bit of the recipe for lamb's head soup. Choose for this purpose a delicate lamb's head. And the feet. Put them both in a large earthen pan and pour upon them a good quantity of boiling water. When they are well scalded, clean them and put them into a small pot. Boil them in a rich broth for half an hour, then put in the liver and with it some slices of fat and lean bacon, because bacon makes everything better, even lamb's head soup, right? Boil these up for some time, set on some mutton gravy in the saucepan, and then fry the brains of the lamb with the yolk of an egg and some crumbs of bread and take care that they have a very good color. And on and on it goes to turn this into a soup. I'm getting into some side dishes that we might find a little more pleasing. We have, um, well, we have pigeons in the Italian way, calf's head stewed, French collops, 
That's C-O-L-L-O-P, and you can look that one up yourself. Um, there are, of course, a lot of things that we might find a little more to our modern liking, like sausages and apples. That sounds good. Minced veal. We have a pupton of apples. Now, again, lay listeners to look up what a pupton is. Um, we have things called kickshaws, which are nice little apple pastries, purple pears, forced savoys. And, of course, if you want to make forced savoys, you start by choosing a couple of savoys, large and tender ones, and quite sound. Take off the outside leaves and clean the rest perfectly well. Well, savoy is a type of a cabbage. Um, but sometimes these recipes are, are quite a puzzle to the modern eye. What was for dessert? Yeah, well, this is an interesting point about understanding Martha Bradley's recipes because sometimes she seems to be writing for somebody who might be living out in the countryside and other times says oh, she's got to be targeting people in modern 1750s London here because she talks about a lot of uh, ingredients you might not think would be in everybody's kitchen. Uh, all throughout, this is very seasonal, and I looked at primarily at the month of November for this set of articles, and she doesn't really have much in the way in the section of confectionery, which is where the desserts are. Um, but she has jellies and custards, and it starts out with making a purple jelly. Now, the very first ingredients in purple jelly is to choose two pairs of fine, clean calves' feet. Take out the bones, put them into a large pot, and pour them in two gallons of water. And pour in half a pound of fine, large, thin hartshorn shavings. An ounce of the finest loaf sugar. And then you boil it up and what have you, and eventually you end up with this jelly-like loaf, um, which sounds a little repulsive to us until you think about gummy bears, which are more or less the same thing, just on a smaller scale than what she prepared here. Um, now, if you don't like the idea of having purple jelly made out of calf's feet, we then go on and we have lemon cheesecake. Well, that's a lot more to our taste than almond custard. I think we can handle that, right? Now, this is just in November. If we look through other parts of her books for other months, we find a whole host of other different nice things like sugared almonds and what have you. She adds interesting notes, in my opinion, when it comes to drinks. Um, she talks about making drinks. She also talks about a methodology for, quote, recovering beer. What was that? That's yeah, a terrific question. And to really understand that we have to think of the context very well, simply something like, well, if you live in 18th century England or 18th century America, how do you buy beer to bring it home? Well, you don't wander down to the local package store and pick up a six-pack. You know, you go out somewhere and buy a large wooden vessel. I'm going to use the term barrel, even though the barrel is a very specific measure in the 18th century. You get a, a puncheon or a hogshead or a, or a barrel of beer, which has quite a few gallons in it, and put it in your basement and draw out what you need when you need it. And often your beer ends up going bad. So she has a recipe here to recover thick beer. 
Now, this is for beer that is thick, ropey, and growing sour. And what she writes is to uh, put a gallon of the beer, uh, put into a gallon of beer a pound of hops, set them over the fire in a vessel well covered, and let them stew sometimes. After this, open the vessel and put in a quarter pound of chalk and some settlings of wort. That's W-O-R-T. Um, work all those together, mix them into the beer, and after a week, it will show the effect, and the beer will continue to last for much longer. Um, now, she also has a, uh, a another recipe in there that says um, to keep drink from growing sour, and here it gives some context. She starts out by writing, everyone is sensible that beer will be pricked by various accidents either by some fault in the brewing or by thunder or in London by the cellar being under a public street um, where the walls and pavements are continually shook by carriages. Also in some places, the want of a convenient cellar. So there's all these different reasons why your beer might go bad and some of it is by being subject to different vibrations and what have you. And of course, then she gets into um, the remedy all this is to keep air out of the barrel and she talks about a way to put padding around the bung in such a way that will make a better seal that the common bung might have so again just by looking at the recipe sometimes the context is provided right in it to give a better sense of why these things are even necessary never mind the strict economy that's featured throughout um, Martha Bradley's writings and just about any cookbook of the time period um a lot of it is focused on things like what do you do with stale bread? You don't just throw things out. You find some other recipe that can incorporate it. Recipes that use sour milk, for example. And uh, any, I call these cookbooks, but really the title of the book is The British Housewife or The Cook, Housekeepers, and Gardener's Companion. Even when we look only at the food recipes in the book, about Half of them are about how to prepare food to eat it, and then half of them will be about preservation. So if you think about at harvest time, you bring everything in, you might, if you live on a farm, within two months, get your whole year's worth of food brought in, and you've got to do something with all of it. So the books are full of recipes for preservation, as well as recipes for cooking. She has a fun drink in there called a mignonette. Could you walk us through that one? Uh, sure. And this is one, again, I just picked one out of dozens and dozens of possible recipes from her section called distillery. So she's got a mignonette, and she starts out by right away with a little bit of marketing speak. Here's something you can serve if you want to look cool, because this is one of the cordials called by the French liqueurs. And it is the most pleasant and wholesome of them all. So right away, she says, here, here's something that will make you the hit of your social scene if you can serve this. So put into a large bottle a gallon of true French brandy. Drop into it five drops of oil of lavender and five of oil of rosemary. Put in two dozen of orange flowers and ten whole cloves. Shake this all together and let it stand all night. The next morning, put in a common still and a hand. Um, I'm sorry. The next morning, put into a common still a handful of balm, a handful of sage, and a handful of sweet basil. Four nutmegs broke with a hammer. 
a quarter pound of cinnamon, and two blades of mace. Make these swim in water, and then make the fire under the still. While this is lighting up, tie up in a piece of muslin, twice double, a quarter of an ounce of saffron, three grams of cochineal, one grain of musk, and six grains of ambergris. Put this into a large bottle and set it under the nose of the worm. Now they're talking about the worm of the still there. By this time, the liquor in the still will be pretty hot. Pour in the brandy and ingredients and instantly close it down. Stir up the fire and work off briskly three quarts and half a pint. Set this in a cellar three days and it will have a fine color from the ingredients in the bag. Then dissolve two ounces of finest sugar in a pint and a half of water and pour into the liquor. Shake it up very well and let it stand for four days more. And then get some half-pint bottles, such as capillaire is brought in, and fill them. Seal them down and paste a paper on the outside with the word mignonette. They are present at this time to the greatest people in France, and the receipt being a secret by the faculty at Montpelier. So again, she closes out with saying, and if you make this stuff, this will be, you'll be on the same level as the greatest people in France. And she's even clever enough at the very end of the recipe to say, hey, put a piece of paper on the outside of the bottle that's written on it what is in the bottle, mignonette. So yeah, it's quite an elaborate process. It assumes that the person owns a still, which is probably not the most common kitchen implement anymore. And, and yeah, it's, it's it's quite a process to make this. And this is one of many, many uh, distilled beverages that she discusses in these books. What do these recipes tell us about the tastes of the 18th century? Well... Straight away, we're challenged by using a phrase like in the 18th century, because just like, uh, you know, if we were to say, what are the tastes of 20th century America, and you looked first at the 1920s and then at the 1990s, you'd get quite a drastically different set of tastes. And the same was true in England in the 18th century. We have to look not just at the century as a whole, but how it changed from the beginning to the end. Martha Bradley was writing in the 1750s. And it's very clear from some of the kinds of things that she brings in what some of the tastes are. She talks about, for example, chickens with Italian sauce, uh, to boil chickens in the Flemish way, um, to celery and egg made in the Dutch way. All throughout, she is introducing... Um, and expressing a high appreciation for continental European cooking. The English were literally eating this stuff up. They wanted the, uh, the European things were so fashionable. And quite frankly, on an island that's not really known for its cuisine, all these places that are known for its cuisine, we're really making this inroads. Here and there throughout her writings, uh, Martha Bradley compares English cooking techniques with continental European ones, and usually the Europeans come out ahead in her estimation. So she's trying to bring the very latest stuff. Um, she published in a series of pamphlets, which is hard for us to grasp, but all we have to do is go into a supermarket, stand in the checkout lane, and say, what's in front of our face when we're waiting? magazines full of the latest recipes about how to make things that will impress your friends and neighbors. 
that's exactly what Martha Bradley was writing in the 1750s for sale in England, is the kinds of things that people would want to grab to have the very latest and greatest and impress their friends and neighbors. Um, she draws very heavily on other sources. So she, most of her recipes are not strictly original, but she modifies recipes that have been out in other cookbooks. And here I'm talking about research that other people have done that I've read up on myself. It's not my own field, but published cookbooks were quite common. And Martha Bradley simply compiled things from other ones, but then she changed the recipes around. She changed seasonings. She simplified some things, uh, made the instructions easier to follow, and she put a lot of these European recipes into better context. She borrowed from some of the most recently published sources, so it showed she was trying very much to be modern and be right on the edge and really present British housewives of the era with the latest and greatest material that she possibly could. So in some ways, what it tells us about taste in the 18th century is that they were evolving and they were very much the same as tastes are now in terms of being driven by trends and being driven by, uh, by change in people's appetite for having something new and for having the latest and to try to make a real impression on other people with something new that you have. That's, that's what I get out of it more than anything in general about, well, people like to eat a lot of beef or anything like that. It's, it's the everything that's old is new again aspect of it. Which of these recipes have survived into the modern era? Uh, and if she were to prepare, prepare a meal for us today, is it something we would recognize in your opinion? That's a great question. You could go through her writings and you could prepare a large feast or she could prepare for you a large selection or things that would look almost exactly like what everything you recognize today. Um, and you'd be completely comfortable. Or you could flip it over and have an equally large banquet of things that you might find horrifying, like that boiled calf's head that I talked about. You know, there, there's a whole lot of things in here that are familiar, and there's probably an equal number that are unfamiliar. So it would really depend on what the entire composition of the meal was. What's much harder to decide is that all these things are visually recognizable would your palate recognize them in the same way? And this would require a different person than me to, uh, to talk about whether uh, preparing these recipes in the way that she describes, if you made Martha Bradley's apple pie, would it taste like your mother's apple pie? Or would it end up tasting nothing like it? Now, it's hard to decide in some of these things because... In general, the measurements are very imprecise. She'll talk about throwing in nutmeg to taste. Well, we find recipes today that are like that, but I would be hard-pressed to know whether what amount of nutmeg would be right for somebody in 1758 London compared to what it would be like in 2019 Rhode Island, for example. So... It's a roundabout way to answer your question, but it comes down to some of the things familiar, some not familiar, and it's really hard to get a sense of how these different things would taste. But 
Anybody who's a foodie today, I highly encourage you to look at the recipes of the 18th century, partly because they're a lot of fun, uh, just the, the style of the language and thinking about things people are using that we might not think of, and also to think about some of these sorts of things. How did tastes change? Is this the same recipe as today? I just don't recognize it because of the language, or is it really something completely different? Don Hagist? Thank you for joining us. No, you're very welcome. Glad to be here. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.